Hello and welcome everyone. This is Digja Patel and you're listening to the VC Prana podcast, a podcast that provides a unique perspective of the startup world through the lens of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. My guest today is Ruel Sangvi, the founder and CEO of Loginext, which is one of the fastest growing global SaaS companies in the delivery and logistics space, also backed by marquee investors like Tiger Global, Steadview Capital and Alibaba. Ruel has been a pioneer in driving transformation and automation in the logistics management space. He's also one of the youngest tech business heads to be named in the coveted Forbes India 30 under 30 and Entrepreneur 35 under 35 lists. In today's episode, we discuss Loginext's journey of scaling up and becoming a global SaaS company, importance of seeking customer feedback, achieving product market fit, performing due diligence, and picking the right investors at early stages of a startup. Let's jump in and listen to the full episode to hear some amazing insights from Dhruvil. Dhruvil, welcome to the VC Prana podcast. Excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for taking our time for this conversation on a Sunday morning all the way from New York. Thanks for having me, Dhruvil. So maybe you can kick things off by talking about Loginex. if you could unpack you know loginex business model for our listeners and you know tell us about who are your customers and what are the pain points that you are solving for them for sure absolutely i think uh, the loginex story goes back to 2015 which is when manisha and i started with a simple concept and the concept evolved from our previous experiences in the us looking at some of the new age startups trying to disrupt this whole world of home deliveries e-commerce transportation not just the b2c part but also the b2b part which most people don't really know about uh, fortunately you know now i can always talk about supply chain disruption and technology in today's world because it's become like a household name i remember you know, before february 2020 if i talk about supply chain digitization most most of my friends or family would not really relate to it much but now since we know you know we, we all know about it you know fortunately we could see a lot of these elements of optimizing automating and creating an experience around delivery processes or transportation businesses back in 2015 a lot of new age organizations like especially in the us uber eats was just picking up uber freight had just launched in 2014 postmates grubhub a lot of these models were scaling up amazon was obviously making global noise at that point in time and i remember even developing countries like india or southeast asian countries were also kind of seeing a similar trend so it was not really a us trend itself it was actually a global trend where delivery and transportation was truly being disrupted with very simple technologies and the whole concept was to really make it human free right now with the use of drones or driverless trucks or even simpler software tools like route optimization delivery automation and what ultimately the whole goal was to take humans out because in transportation and delivery humans are always involved in decision making right while it's a repetitive job as such So that's what we thought that if we can really help traditional incumbents uh, of this space fight against the new age players globally, then there's an opportunity for us. That was the whole thesis behind Loginex. We started with some of the customers locally in India, which is where we were based out of back back then. Obviously, I remember Manisha and I were both on you know, non-immigrant visas in US, uh, and you can't really start a business back then uh, on those visas. And of course, we had limited resource pool as well, especially of capital. to experiment anything significantly in the US so we kind of moved back to mumbai uh, in 2015 fortunately india was just waking up to this whole world of startups and venture capital so there were early believers of our idea of our vision we honestly did not have anything in our hands except for a business plan and a website when we raised our first angel round of investment but our, belie- our early believers our early angels uh, supported us and then you know we kind of 
went on and acquired customers and then built the whole story. But that's story behind Logimix. Right. Very interesting. So tell us these customers that you mentioned, you know, you mentioned some of the bigger names, but is there a minimum ticket size for some of your customers that, that you could onboard at, at Loginex? Yes. Yeah, so on, from the business model perspective, we are a SaaS offering, which means we charge a subscription fee to use our platform. We earlier used to sell to you know mid-scale customers or small-scale customers, uh, especially in local markets like India and nearby countries. It was more of an experimental journey to kind of, you know, get our product built. And at that time, I remember we used to sell uh, our software between like $20,000 a year to $40,000 a year kind of ticket size. For India, it was, you know, it, it still is not small amount, but we could gather some early seriousness and early trust from some of the early customers. And they helped us kind of scale the product from zero to, you know, uh, wherever it had to go. In 2017 and 2018 beginning is when we really kind of picked up our business globally, where we realized that it, this is not just you know an India problem. A lot of the features that we had built were directly applicable to global large-scale enterprises. And then we saw that interest coming in from, uh, from our website, from our social media channels, from our partners globally. And that's when we realized that, you know, why don't we really take the game to the next level where we can start working with some of the early enterprise customers and we can really solve more problems for them than just a dispatch or a delivery automation problem. So that's when we realized, why don't we go to order scheduling? Why don't we go to payrolling? Why don't we go to you know uh, driver settlements, right? And there's a lot of other stuff that goes behind the scene and not just the dispatch part. So we built those features. We offered as pilots to some of the large seasoned enterprise customers. And today in 2020, we charge between $200,000 to a million dollars a year per customer. But these are enterprise large customers. And this is our initial ticket size that we start with. And then depending on the scale of the operations, it goes from. Right. I want to rewind the clock a bit now, you know, like go from your early days to see how you evolved. Tell us what was the initial, uh, you know, journey where, where you were just uh, in Mumbai with a business model and you were trying to form a company. What were you thinking? Were you thinking about hiring? Were you thinking about scaling your product, hiring engineers? What was the first thought when you came back to India? Well, I get this question asked quite a lot uh, because this is the toughest thing to crack, right? For uh, for an early stage founder or an early entrepreneur or even for a seasoned entrepreneur but doing a new business, the first thing to, you know, it is a chicken and the egg problem, right? What do you do first? Like, do you get people first, but you, you don't want to spend much because you don't have customers. You can't get customers because you don't have product. You can't build a product because you don't have people, right? So you're in that loop. But obviously the first thing is, uh, it, it really depends on the market that you are into, but the first thing is product because you have to have something to, offer to your customers. Uh, so I think the first thing we did based on our research and based on our customer conversations, we built, built an MVP, which was a simplistic version of what we wanted to do. And we were offering it to customers who had simple enough operations to being able to adopt it. And we had, I remember we had literally like two contractors. We had no idea on how to kind of hire more people. We just wanted to be very cost conscious at that point to make sure that we don't really go and overspend. We obviously didn't have any investors behind us. It was our own money. And I think that's what we did first, getting two contractors, building an MVP. I remember writing the, the you know, first lines of the code myself along with Manisha. I think we quickly realized that you know, she is the brain behind the product. And I was better at marketing and distribution of the of the software itself. So we assumed our roles as CEO and CTO early on, which, which is another you know, good thing that happened to us. First six months were majority focused on that. Revenue, scalability, uh, reputability was not really kind of focused. You know, whoever would pay us, we would be okay with that. Over time, of course, we built our pricing model. We built our marketing engines. We built our partners using which we can distribute the software across the world. To do all these things, we got some good early team members on board. But of course, uh, it's very difficult to hire those early members because they have to believe in you when you don't have a lot of data points on why they should believe in you. 
And there's an interesting blog that I read when I was doing some research. You spoke to about 100 retail and transportation CEOs in about 100 days. I just want to understand what was the objective behind that approach, complete brute force approach, and how did you optimize that feedback into your product? I think that's a that's a good find. I must say, uh, a lot of work had gone at that, we, and we still talk to a lot of customers. I think I think one fundamental thing most founders, especially the first time founders, including myself, commit as a mistake is not talking to customers enough. And this is such a cliche sentence. I, I myself have heard most people talking and, and and writing about this, but still, when you are doing it yourself, this is the biggest challenge that you face. You, you kind of jump onto your own conclusions and you start building and selling it without really talking to customers. Enough. So one fine day, I think we had just realized that, you know, while we are doing our own job in terms of talking to customers, we just felt that we are not doing it enough. And there was not enough, you know, that there was not a structured way to really go about it. Today's world also, I advise a lot of early stage founders and the same question remains on how to talk to customers, but there's no other way but, but to go to brute force. One good thing we did was uh, we had a good social presence. We had a good offline presence as well. We had a lot of network and connects because we were working in this industry in our previous jobs. So by finding directly or indirectly connects, by sending cold emails to people on discussing what we're trying to achieve, you know, what we would like to learn from them, we were able to kind of attract a lot of responses. And one thing I've, I've learned it, you know, in a, in a very interesting way is that people are helpful in general. Most people think that customers are busy and they don't really help, especially enterprises are even more busier and they don't really care about you. But my experience is the exact opposite. I've always seen senior executives of large scale or even mid scale, small scale organizations. They are all generally helpful because they also want to try out new things. They want to learn from new people. So I think with that logic, we just kind of reached out to these, you know, I must have sent what 500 simple like notes via social media, emails, events, our own connects, indirect connects, whatnot. And we did like a 15 minute quick calls with all hundred of them. And we were only asking them two or three key questions not to bore them with a lot of research and analysis. It was three simple questions on what their priorities are, what their key problems are, and what we are doing makes sense to them or not at a very high level. And those data points was sufficient enough to kind of open our eyes because they could obviously see some emerging trends and patterns within these people's responses. And that fortunately was very similar to our thesis, which was, you know, I would call it sheer luck or maybe our better research or maybe a good market time. Uh, but that was the movement of truth for us that's saying that you know, hey this is we are going in the right direction and we incorporated that feedback into our product immediately which was fairly high level so we kind of drilled it down did it in three months you know rolled out the next version of the product to the same hundred people and naturally they were more inclined towards trying it out right because they feel more passionate and, and they feel the ownership that my feedback has gone into it so i think that that entire loop just worked out really well in addition to the market timing was also good uh, supply chain is an or transportation is one area where not a lot has happened and most of the existing tech stack is, is pretty old in, in general. So that kind of gives us another opportunity to kind of enter and crack this market in a relatively easier manner. Right. And would you say that that was a moment of product market fit for you? I, I think I would call product market fit a little bit of a later concept after that. Okay. I, you know, this, is, this is one area which everybody talks about. It's very vague. Everybody has their own definition. But for us, it was about when you don't have to push the product to the customer, when customer starts to pull it, when market starts to pull the product, on its own, that's when a product market fit comes. And for us, yeah, this was not the moment because this was still very early. This, the, the whole story I you know, shared about this whole hundred you know, interviews was, I think, maybe late 2015, early 2016. Product market fit really for us happened in 2017, I would say. You, know, you also see that customers' stickiness increases, their usage day on day increases, the leads that you get inbound increases. So you see majority of your key areas around your product and distribution, they accelerate on their own without you having to work harder day by day. 
is what our measure of product market fit was. I remember it was somewhere in 2017 because we did a lot of quarterly analysis on in that year and every quarter was like really good. And then that allowed us to take a lot of bold steps in 2018 to go global, invest more money into newer markets and hire more people who could repeat this process. So I would call that as a product market fit. That's definitely a good takeaway because everyone, as you said, you know, has their own definition. This one is a unique one that I've heard so far and you know, it's you're right, you know, when your product is getting pulled in by the market, that's naturally a product market fit. And you spoke about scale, you know, which was my next question. In your opinion, you know, what are the fundamental focus areas that a founder should keep in mind, you know, before going from X to 10X? You know, you've already achieved that initial traction. You have found customers, uh, but now it's the time to scale. Got it. Um, so I think, I think for, for us, that time was of an accelerated journey or, or a quick uh, repetition of the same process and same revenue scale what was happening over 2018, 2019. It still happens, but it's in a different scale now. How to do it and what my advice to other founders would be, I think first is to constantly think uh, repeatability. While we, everybody wants to get scale, what most people end up thinking is to somehow get to the next customer and then they figure out, okay, now I'll somehow go to the next other two customers. But they don't think that that hustle doesn't work beyond the point. And that's when they get stuck where they would have gotten like, let's say 100K ARR with their early product market fit customers and they would just not reach $1 million ARR ever. And if they have gotten 1 million, they would not reach like, you know, let's say two or three or four in a quicker manner. That's where your previous background, your education, your previous work experience is very, very handy. Starting up does not require you to have any experience or any education whatsoever. We all know about that. But scaling up actually, in my opinion, does require some structured thinking, some process building. Uh, and at the same time, you also need people who can think that. Like even if you hire your early sales guys, they need to have that ability to build repeatable sales processes. If you hire your early marketeers, even the first marketeer, that person should have ability to repeat, you know, get those processes repeated. Otherwise, they would do things to show you traction and the traction would fade away again in three months. And you'll, have, you'll end up just recreating the traction every quarter. And uh, at the end of the year, you'll feel tired and you'll realize it's not really good. So that's the number one suggestion I would do. And number two is invest in people. Very easy to say, very, very difficult to uh, because it's not about investing in every person that you hire, but hiring the right person, motivating the right person, coaching them, training them, scaling them, making them believing in you, you believing in them, all those sort of things happen, which is, I think at an early stage, very difficult because we have a small team uh, and there's a constant sense of doubt in everybody. And you are the only one who can actually break the doubts by setting examples while you yourself are also doubting yourself behind the scenes. So a lot of those sentiments play. And, you know, as you were scaling, how did you get that balance between growth and profitability? And that's a great question. And so I'll tell you how we did it. But fundamentally, why it happens is purely dependent on what kind of company founders want to do. I've seen both the side of story and nothing is right or wrong here. There are certain founders who do not really think that profitability is important at all or even to think about it in short term. There are certain investors also who would support them on that. And in that case, it's fine to quickly scale up and not think about saving money. At the same time, the market should and the business model should support it, right? For example, in our business model, no matter how much money we spend, our customers don't buy because we do a lot of marketing. Our customers purely buy us because we bring value. So even if, let's say, we would have spent a lot on growth, we wouldn't have achieved growth unless the value was really given as such. Now, how we did it? Making sure that you know your numbers well and you spend less than what you make or at least what you aspire to make in the next two to three quarters. Fundamentally, a lot of business models are flawed where there is no understanding of unit economics, where there is no understanding of simple concept like EBITDA or, you know, 
contribution margin and things like that. Because in today's world, especially in the tech world, most entrepreneurs are techies. And so were we as well. Fortunately, we had good partners, investors, incubators that we kind of participated in. It just gives you a reality check around numbers. If you don't have the right way to look at it, if you don't have projections in place, it's okay if you don't meet the projections always. But if you don't have those things in place, it kind of leads you towards spending more. The resources are so so scarce early on in your journey that by the time you realize that it's not working, it's too, it's too late and the damage is done. And you would have either spent a lot of money or you would have built or entered a model of selling, which is inherently profitable. Now that's number one. And number two, having that you know frugal culture beyond the product. I think you know, Amazon, as we all know, while they have spent a lot of money and they were one of the companies which has spent a lot of cash in their journey while they were private, their fundamental culture is frugal, right? And that means they have spent money for their customers and not for any other frivolous activities. I think where you spend money is very, very important than just spending money. That's another way of looking at it. Uh, we have seen that, you know, we consciously hired people from you know, more uh, SaaS backgrounds, enterprise software backgrounds, you know, people who have scaled or run or at least be a, become a part of profitable organizations. We would consciously not hire from companies where there is an extreme growth mindset without thinking about money because we would know that the person naturally ends up bringing the same culture in, you know, at us and which is not, nothing wrong in that culture. It's just that it doesn't fit our business model. Right. As I said, that fundamentally, just because we are spending more money, customers don't buy more of Loginex and pay us more. So I think that's a simple math. We, I remember we had a good uh, financial model in place in 2015, 2016 on our day one. Maybe some of our consulting backgrounds helped us because we had done something similar for our customers at that time. I'd also seen that a lot of my other fellow entrepreneurs or promoters, they did not even care about building an operating model because they were like, it's too early. You know, why would you think about cash flow? Why would you think about EBITDA right now? Right? You're hardly making money. Forget about EBITDA. Right? There's no revenue. Just think top line. And some of them have done great. Maybe better than Loginex. And some of them have also failed miserably. We think that we have found a pretty good comfort around profitability versus growth. It's a very fine balance. Like even for public market companies today's date, a lot of companies are also, especially on US stock exchanges, a lot of public companies are, you know, they do not make money, but they still have strong business models and they're able to drive a communication to their shareholders in a very smart and effective manner, which drives a great belief and they enjoy you know, great market cap and great stock prices as surges. But again, how you kind of balance it out is very, very important. Even if you're spending more money and there's a heavy burn, at least having a sense on how to control it, that's also fine. Right. Very interesting that you mentioned, you know, it has to be embedded in the team's culture and trickled down to, you know, all the leaders that you hire going forward. And you also mentioned that, you know, you don't market as much because like you said, you know, the value is what drives your customers to come to you. But you have some channel partners in different countries that you use to grow your presence. So can you tell us about those channel partners and, you know, what's the marketing model there? So first of all, we are a very global business. That means our revenue comes from multitude of countries. Now, when you have customers in tens of countries, then the only option to go to market there and scale up there is to have partners because not every country brings you a lot of revenue and you can't naturally have a physical presence there or you can't hire people dedicated just to sell. So the easiest thing to you know go about is having local players who understand your business and who understand the markets there and they will, they will find you and they will plug the gap. So for us, rather than we going and building a channel distribution, channel distribution came to us. And that's how we figured out because none of us really had any backgrounds or any knowledge whatsoever on how to really build channel distribution. We, we never had anybody doing the channel strategy or you know owning it and then those now we do, but we never had for the first three to four years of our business. Like we were getting a lot of inbound interest from these partners, from small scale, mid scale, large scale partners, from 
system integrators, to consulting firms, to product companies, to platforms, to local small vendors, resellers, whatnot. And we had a whole spectrum of, you know, literally like one point we had like, would get like 50 leads every month. Half of them would be just partners and from all the part of the world. Like, so that, that was very motivating. But at the same time, it's a lot of noise because if you don't do it well, it results into just you trying to educate your partners and they can't sell that. So picking the right partners, spending more time with them, educating them, incentivizing them correctly and evaluating which countries you want to have partners in is very, very important. Like we today, we still get like inquiries from literally more than 50 countries for customers and partners, but we don't entertain half of it because we know that we practically do not want to spend time because the markets of the other the half of those 50 countries may not be large enough. So rather we would just not spend time any, any time on those and we would only spend time with the other 25. So those sort of strategic speaking helped on the way, but overall we never consciously thought about it. It came to us and that's what I would advise to any new company, especially in SaaS, you know, do some early marketing and awareness campaigns in some of the targeted geographies or markets and try to attract partners rather than you trying to go and pitch it to partners because you pitch to partners and then partners pitching to customers. It's like a double level of risk you are taking. And if it doesn't work out, you end up spending the, double the time. So rather make a pull again there rather than making a push. If it doesn't work out, doesn't work out. I'm just going to add to that. Yeah. Uh, not really every business has to have channel distribution. A lot of businesses can do really well going direct. So that's, that's why a pull is better than a push because then the market will tell you whether your business is a distribution kind of a business or direct channels. Right. I think it's very interesting because, you know, that way you save on marketing dollars and at the same time, identify whether your product is ready to be distributed in those markets. So definitely a good way to approach that dynamic. Uh, I want to switch gears a bit now and, you know, talk a little bit about the founder investor dynamics. And interestingly, you've seen investors right from angel investors being in, in an accelerator to late stage hedge funds. So tell us when you started off, you know, in that accelerator program with GeoGen Next, how was that program experience with Geo in the beginning? And what are the benefits that, you know, came through from that accelerator program before your institutional funding? Overall, I would say extremely helpful. There's a lot of articles around this because I've been very open in sharing my journey. And that's my number one advice to any early founder who is clueless. Because the biggest thing an incubation or an accelerator brings to you is either they bring validation or they break your perception. And which is exactly what you want in your early days. You need somebody you respect who knows a lot about your business to be your you know, virtual board member and who you could be accountable towards. And they help you at the right time when you need them and not force their help on you. I've seen a lot of advisory relationships in the world are not like that because it's like one person's opinion that a founder ends up taking versus an accelerator or an incubator. Especially that's what happened at Geo. That was a group of people from different verticals within Geo. Some of them were investors outside of Geo. They had just kind of brought them as mentors. Uh, and most importantly, uh, people who could understand our business model. So they took time to understand our business and not forcing it on us, but challenging us and measuring us in our own definition. That was super helpful. The other thing I want to talk about is, you know, what do you do after your seed stage, initial angel rounds, accelerator round? There's a pool of investors who are willing to invest. How do you, you know, do that due diligence as a founder, you know, before raising funds from a particular investor after that initial seed stage? Great question. The first step to do any diligence on investors is to make sure that you have options. If you have only one investor who is willing to invest in you, no matter how much sane of a founder you are, you will not be able to do diligence and you will take that money, whether you like them or not. Because money is so much more important at that stage than the comfort with the investors. And you end up saying that, you know, let me just take money. I'll figure out the comfort. 
So having at least two options, not by just shopping around uh, as such, but talking to more investors, talk to angel investors, talk to corporate accelerators, talk to strategic investors, talk to VC funds, seed stage funds. Now a lot of sovereign funds have early stage investments. Now hedge funds have early stage investments. Now everybody wants to do early stage investments, right? So there's tons of options. Go pitch to them. There will be a heavy rejection ratio, but that's fine. Most likely you will get a lot of feedback. You will get to understand the differences in how people think based on their questions. So for us, coincidentally, we ended up talking to a lot of investors and just evaluating them based on their questions, not by asking questions to them as much, which is also something every founder should do. We did not do a great job at it, but just by evaluating what they ask, how they ask, how they work with you, how much they really understand you is very, very important. So that is on the seed stage. As you grow and you do like a series A and other investments, you naturally develop an experience around you know, how it is to work with an investor. And fundamentally, it is very simple because they are your partners. So the earlier you get to a co-founder kind of a comfort with them, the better it is. And then most investors will look the same because whoever you go to and pitch to, if you can establish that rapport very quickly in first or one or two meetings, then naturally that relationship will go very well. And if the first couple of meetings are very awkward, even if their conversation goes ahead, it, at some point it breaks. So having that sense of comfort early on is very, very important, especially based on their understanding of you as an individual and their, their understanding of your business. There are extremely seasoned investors, but if that investor does not understand your business, very high likelihood of failure of a relationship and of a company as well. There might be not so marquee, low profile, small funds, but if they don't understand your business really well, there is very, very highly likelihood that you will do really well in your company and you will naturally attract market investors also in future because the numbers will be very good. So that's what I would recommend. Right. I think that's a very interesting perspective. And what my takeaway is that, you know, you need to listen to those signals really well, apart from just asking those questions. And you know what, it's, it's very easy. Like I remember we used to get questions asked. So, so SaaS in India, especially was not a famous word. Back then in 2015, it was difficult to even explain what an ARR is because uh, most investors, season ones, did not know the difference between ARR and normal revenue. And that's the most frustrating part for a SaaS founder when somebody you know, doesn't respect recurring revenue. So that was number one. Kind of, I was able to decide whether this person really understands or not. And second was uh, understanding the global thesis, right? Very few companies in India have successfully scaled global. So when you go and pitch a global vision, if the questions are still India focused, you end up realizing that, okay, maybe they haven't seen any global journey yet, right? Because all their questions are ultimately coming. They kind of push you back into talking India again and again. Like I had a lot of such experiences where I would talk, I would take examples of non-India and then I would constantly remind them that no, that's an Indian concept. So let's again, you know, think US or think Singapore or think Dubai. And then, yes, and then they'll consciously be able to think with you, but it doesn't naturally come from them. And that's like a no-no sign for me because then I don't want to have a partner who I have to constantly remind that we are not that business which you are thinking we are. I think that's a great takeaway, you know, for all the listeners are listening. Thanks for that. And with that, I want to quickly segue into our final segment, which is the rapid fire round. I'll ask you a few questions and, you know, I hope you share your immediate thoughts on the same. Yes, let's do it. So one, what's your favorite book and a book that you would suggest every entrepreneur should read? Zero to one. Peter Thiel. Okay. Uh, if you had to give a TED talk, what topic would you choose? How gross margin compounds eventually. I've personally been very impressed when I see a high contribution of gross margin compounding over years and I would want to like just showcase at you know, some point to the world in a very visually appealing and interesting way uh, this boring concept of gross margin and compounding. People from the startup ecosystem that you look up to and why? 
I think one, you know, one person I have, I, I admire as a, you know, as someone I have just met once, but like a huge persona in my life as a, as somebody I can ever have a mentor or as an inspiration is Jack Ma. A little closer example would be Scott Schleifer, who is one of the co-founders and one of the directors at Tiger Global. For Jack Ma, the reason behind that is kind of, again, building a global, truly global business in an extremely competitive manner and owning a market like China. Or something which is which is such a difficult to execute businesses. Great job done and very inspirational story as well. And for Scott, it is his fundamental understanding at looking at businesses in a very simple way and taking decisions based on some of the simple data points, which everybody has, but they can't take decisions in, in that accurate manner. And, and his, his portfolio and his success speaks for itself. But the clarity of thought with little and simple data points is amazing. Great. I think that's about it from our end. Uh, you know, any final thoughts for entrepreneurs that are listening to the show? Overall, it's a great time to become an entrepreneur. So you know, you're doing a thankless job. So uh, pat yourself. You know, invest in people a lot early on. Very, very important. Very cliche, but most people don't do it. We didn't do it really. A great job at it. Uh, amazing things happen when you have amazing people around you. And yeah, overall, you know, I think the world cannot be more ripe to start a business in tech, especially in tech, and, and scale it to another heights. So that's all. Duval, it was great having you on the show today. Thanks again for your time and hopefully we'll have you again on the show. Thank you, Dikjay. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the VC Bruno podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let our guests know about it. Share your thoughts on social media and let them know what were your key takeaways. We would truly appreciate if you could subscribe to our podcast on the podcast platform of your choice and leave us a review on Apple iTunes. This will help others discover the podcast to get insights and to learn more about startups and venture capital, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We will love to hear from you there. You can find all episodes together on our website, thevcpreneur.com. We will be back again next week with another VCpreneur that is making a dent in the venture universe. Until then, take care and keep shining.